Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SIPREP. This time we focus on one difficult and sensitive issue, suicide. Although cases of people serving in the armed forces taking their own lives are low, among men in the army, the figures have been rising in recent years. And the government has started research to understand why, for some very specific groups of veterans, the risk of suicide appears to be much higher young people who leave the military. So when you leave having not served for very long, then your risk of suicide increased. And that may well be because the most vulnerable people don't serve for very long. When suicide involves someone who serves or has served their country, that can make it more likely to be reported in the media. But headlines do not tell the full story. And so in this edition of BFBS SITREP, we go behind those headlines to better understand the true picture of suicide risks, how we can improve support and the ways to help or get help. Now, because you may find some of what we talk about distressing, I want to point you straight away to a page on our website where there are links to find help. That's at bfps.com slash audience support. Throughout the programme, we'll hear from Herbie. He's an army veteran who attempted to take his own life twice. Now he works with a charity Combat Stress to help raise awareness about suicide and help others. He shares frank details about the mental health challenges he faced after he left the army. I became a like a workaholic and I really struggled working in a factory because of being outside all the time. I just had to get on with it. You, you know, you, that military side of you kicks in. You know, I started to drink quite a bit. It's a vicious cycle. And because of the nightmares, the flashbacks, it... it the PTSD was controlling me. I hadn't got a life. And you just think, well, I can't put up with this no more. My wife turned around and said to me, you need to get some help, because apparently I'd grabbed her around the throat in my sleep, thinking she was an IRA person. Time went on, and then she said, look, if you don't get some help, I'm going to leave you. Herbie did get help. Things are much better for him now and we'll hear much more of his story, which he shares to help others understand that it is possible to come back from those very lowest feelings. But let's look first at the bigger picture. We have accurate statistics for suicides among serving members of the armed forces. Coroner's inquests over the last 20 years have recorded that 264 servicemen and 21 servicewomen took their own lives. Behind each of those figures are stories of great sadness. But those numbers also tell us that for most people in the forces, there is actually a lower risk of suicide than the population as a whole. However, an increase over the last five years in the number of men in the army taking their own lives suggests their risk is now about the same as the general population. For veterans, there are no accurate figures available. The government has only recently started gathering data. But in 2009, a study by the University of Manchester found a mixed and concerning picture amongst those who'd left the forces. While most had no greater risk of suicide, in some smaller groups, the risk is notably higher particularly men in their early 20s, who were found to be up to three times more likely to take their own life. Former Royal Navy officer Professor Neil Greenberg is the Royal College of Psychiatrists' lead for military and veterans' health. 
The challenge is what happens to people when they leave the military, lose that kind of social network and, and that sense of duty. And we only have one uh, now quite dated paper, which tells us that young people who leave the military. So when you leave having not served for very long, then your risk of suicide increase. But as you get older, so um, then actually your risk again goes down to what the general population is and actually below that. So a long length of the service um, seems to be protective. And that may well be because the most vulnerable people don't serve for very long and then they leave and have a higher suicide risk. We know that um, what's called childhood adversity, which you know, all these difficult experiences that people have during their upbringing, absolutely predisposes people to unfortunately take their own life and suffer with mental health problems. And I have to say, you know, quite rightly, I think as well, the military, particularly the army, but the military as a whole, takes in a number of people with challenging backgrounds, you know, that they are encouraged or motivated to join up, to have a family uh, of people around them who are like-minded and to do something meaningful. And certainly when I was serving as a psychiatrist, I would always ask people why they joined the military. And I would, people, sometimes you'd hear the story, and I heard it many times, saying, well, it's a choice between either drugs and prison or joining the military, and I chose the military. So people with those sorts of backgrounds do join up Many of them do really well and, and have successful careers, but unfortunately some don't. And then they leave after a relatively short period of service. And of course, they're at higher risk mm. because of their backgrounds. The government is going to get some official figures, aren't they, on the number of veterans who do take their own lives. But is there a greater risk among veterans, do you believe, than among serving personnel? The data we have says it probably is higher on the basis as I've said, you know, the people who have a very challenging and difficult experiences come into the military, they don't serve for very long and they leave. There are also people who come in having had, you know, perfectly reasonable backgrounds who do go through really uh, difficult uh, experiences whilst they're serving and develop mental health problems. Uh, and then they leave thinking the mental health problems will get better when they leave. But I'm Fortunately, they don't in many cases. And we know that people who have mental health conditions, you know, including depression uh, and, uh, and PTSD, but also alcohol misuse by itself, all those groups of people are at increased risk of taking their own life. Mm. And, and what do you know about the suicide risk of regulars compared to reservists? The, the figures that I, I'm aware of um, uh, mostly pertain to, to regular personnel. So I, I'm not sure that we necessarily have a great grip on uh, reservist suicide. Um, and that's because, of course, if they're not serving at the time uh, or they're not active service at the time that they take their own life, they may well not come up in the military's still serving figures. Um, mm. I would imagine, and we see this with many other forms of mental ill health, particularly actually with alcohol, is that the risk tends to fall somewhere in between the risk you'd find for a civilian and the risk you'd find for a regular. But I, I would be speculating there. I'm not sure we really know the answer. Professor Neil Greenberg, well, to understand how we can reduce the risks of suicide and how to help someone who may be at risk of taking their own life, we should first understand the reasons it happens. Everyone's story is different, but we can learn from each of them. Herbie joined the army in the late 70s when he was 16. He served seven years, including two tours of duty in Northern Ireland. It was really full on, you know, and there were shootings, there were bombings, there was rioting, um, and it, it, it was just a constant battle every day of, you know, being switched on and being aware. As time goes on and on, you then begin to think, well, when is my luck going to run out? You lost two friends in Northern Ireland. What happened? Yeah. 
we'd literally got just a few weeks left of a, a two-year tour. And a good friend of mine, Chris Shenton, was out on patrol and uh, he got shot. They, they seemed to think he was dead before he hit the floor. And then in 1984, my second friend, Steve Anderson, Steve trod on like a pressure plate, which blew him clean in half. And when when you see your friend, that happened to your friend, you, you know, it wasn't until after that you then sort of ponder on what's gone on. It really did sink in. It, it tore me apart, actually, inside. Was it at that point that you decided to leave the army? Yes. I really looked at my life and thought, well, my life's maybe worth a little bit more than this. So I, I chose to, to leave. I do regret leaving. When you leave the military, it's a family that you can't get out here in civilian street. How did you adapt to civilian life? Uh, well, I didn't very well. Um, I, I looked at the fact is that I had to work, I had to pay my mortgage, provide for my family. When I went into hospital and had a, a total knee replacement, um, I started seeing things in the garden. The nightmares were getting really extreme. The night sweats, the night terrors, shouting out. You tried to take your own life twice. Is there anything you can identify that led to you taking that decision at the time and that step? Um, the only thing I can say is that, you know, you you get that low and the, the thoughts come into your brain and my thoughts were, this is now life for me, it's now life for my family. Um, I haven't got a life, I'm, I'm just existing. And because of the sleep deprivation, the nightmares, the flashbacks, it, it, the PTSD was controlling me. I hadn't got a life. And you just think, well, you know, my family would be better off. I'd be better off because I can't put up with this no more. Um, it was destroying me. I was such an angry man. I was angry at the world. Um, I was on a self-destruct mode. And, and then I just got to that point where you think, right, let's do it. Don't say anything to anybody. You don't talk about it. You just go and do it. Well, thankfully, you are here. What made you ask for help? Um, I realised, you know, as time went on, I was beginning to realise I've got a real serious problem. And then when Jackie said, you either get... your some... wife. Yeah. Um, married 40 years this year. Congratulations. Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she's been a diamond, you know, and my two daughters. I certainly wouldn't have got through it without her. It is a reality check for me. You know, I was fortunate a Polish driver stopped me. And in that split second of being back in the real world, think about your family, which I did. I then thought, what am I doing to my family? Leaving, leaving that for them to think about that things were that bad that you can't talk to your family. Family is everything. 
things aren't so bad really sometimes and you have to look at what you do actually have around you it, it it's got to be a lot better than taking your own life well, listening to Herbie speaking there with me is Professor Neil Greenberg. I just wonder what you think when you hear Herbie's story. Well, I, I guess a number of thoughts go through my head. You know, the first is as a, as a psychiatrist and also a veteran myself, I, I feel a great deal of compassion uh, for a man who clearly was in a really, really difficult uh, place uh, as a result of the, the military service he gave. It's certainly not unusual. I've certainly heard stories similar to Herbie's, but but it's certainly not the case that everybody who has PTSD experiences the sort of you know, the, the sort of dire thoughts that Herbie has. You know, many many do manage to find ways through uh, and get help. Those who are left behind when someone takes their own life, the question that they ask themselves over and over and over again, I imagine, is why. Are there any useful answers to that question? Gosh, yes. I mean that 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 is a that is a, a very likely situation of, of of why and you know what could I have done? Um, I think we we know that there are lots of causes. The main causes uh, relate to isolation. They relate to uh, being pessimistic and hopeless. Um, both of those two uh, factors can be associated with mental ill health. There's also the fact that um, you know, people's backgrounds, as I've said, may predispose them to to be hopeless and to to not have good coping skills. So when they're when they're faced with stressful life events, rather than think, "How do I get out of it?", it they become all consumed by it and see no way out. Um, alcohol is particularly um, a, a, a an important factor. We know people who uh, misuse alcohol or indeed misuse illicit drugs are also at increased risk. Um, and then there is also the, the situation where people get into crises. So it might be that a partner leaves them. It might be they lose their job. It might be that they they um, get um, convicted of a, of a, of a serious offence. And, and at that point, the hopelessness really kicks in. So all those factors can add up. Professor Neil Greenberg will shortly will look at how we can use our understanding of the reasons people take or try to take their own lives to improve support and save more lives. Before we do that, though, it's important to stress that there is help available if you are struggling with difficult thoughts or if someone close to you is. Joe Dukes created a support group for the fallen, specifically for military families after her husband, Dave, took his own life in 2018. Dave was um, in the army for most of his, his life. He served in every major combat zone from Northern Ireland to Afghanistan. He was very dedicated to the army. He absolutely loved the army. He was a typical um, army man. He was very proud of his service. He had um, the worst banter in the world, <laughs> sometimes could be quite offensive to people. Um, I used to call him a social grenade. He, <laughs> he, he, didn't, um, he didn't suffer fools gladly. He had a good sense of humour, but he also had another side to him. And, and I think one of the things we have to recognise is nobody is all good or all bad. They're just human beings. And although he had some amazing qualities, there was also the part of him that was quite difficult over many years. And witnessing his struggle must have been incredibly difficult for you. It, it was it was really difficult. It, the lead up to his death was was really difficult, which is something I'm quite passionate about, is recognising the the amount of support we give 
to those around people, you know, whether they be close friends or they be partners or mums and dads, whoever's close to that person needs support in able to remain close to them and in, in order to support them and understand what's going on. It's very isolating. It can be um, quite traumatic in some ways. And what words would you offer to someone listening who may be witnessing a loved one going through the kind of struggles that you saw your husband experiencing? I would say that you're probably stronger than you think and that there is support available. The Ripple Pond is amazing and still I'm, I'm surprised that so little people know that there is peer-to-peer -peer support available out there for those who are living with someone with a physical and a mental injury. That there are other groups, there's um, lots of people that you can connect with who can just validate how you're feeling or just listen to you. And I would also say that some of the charities also offer therapy. They offer support to family members. But you have to put yourself out there and you have to be, be ready to accept and accept yourself as a carer, which a lot of people still find quite difficult. And then I would say if, if the worst does happen, we run a peer-to-peer -peer support group for anybody who has been bereaved by suicide um, in the military community of any any family relation. We don't differentiate between family members at all. Jo, um, talking to you, you sound really resilient and really tough. How, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I think because I have changed career completely now to, to do this full time, you know, I'm part of NHS Improvement, the, the, you know, the military mental health. I'm part of the clinical reference group for, for mental health to do with veterans. Um, I do a lot of work with a lot of people and try and lend my experience to them and what it's like from a family's perspective and how we could improve things. And I think that has helped me to, um, to move forward in life. And I think that's something we all need to to accept that sometimes we do need to move forward with as much positivity as we can. Joe Dukes, founder of For the Fallen. One message that's come through from everybody I've talked to for this programme is that if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, talking to someone about it really can help. A friend of mine happened to, to be going past who I served with um, and... He stopped and said, you know, you've not been yourself for quite a few years. He says, you know, you're not your happy-go-lucky self. Where's that big smile gone? You know, you, you look down all the time. Um, and I just broke down and, and I told him what I'd attempted to do. And he happened to be working for the Royal British Legion. He contacted Combat Stress. And the next thing is, and then somebody came out to see me and, it went from there. And how are you now? Me, I'm living the dream. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've been out. I've done a lot of charity work. Um, I've come on so far that I'm part of uh, the peer support uh, team. Uh, so I'm a volunteer. So I can help other veterans. I will say it's not easy. It, it, I was told to combat stress you know, you will only get out of this program what you put into it. Mm -hmm. You have to fight for that. 
you've got to fight the PTSD and now it doesn't control me. I live alongside it. So it's not in control of me anymore. You know, but I would say to anybody, if the help's there, go and get some help. Don't, don't hide away because it, it, it really isn't, it isn't worth it. One of the best known groups offering support by listening is the charity Samaritans. It has a military programme led by former army officer Joe Walcott. I asked what he would say to someone who may have concerns about asking for help. Firstly, I would say, you know, if, if you can and if, if it's comfortable um, for you to do so, is to reach out to those closest to you. The main thing really is to talk to those around you, those with a vested interest in your well-being. It's really important to understand that you're, you're really not alone in this. And perhaps where you cannot talk to those closest to you is to pick up the phone to Samaritans 116-123. Um, we better speak to a, a trained listening volunteer. Um, there's no judgment involved, fully confidential. And actually then you'll be able to perhaps offload some of the challenges that you that you might have. But it's it's really, impo- really important to, um, to talk. And again, I'd probably stress that, you know, if you're in a position where um, someone is opening up to you, it's really important to listen, really important to listen in, in that first instance. And that doesn't necessarily involve giving advice or solving their problems, but actually just being a listening ear in the first instance. And actually, we have some listening tips on, on the Samaritan's website, uh, shush, S-H-U-S-H. Um, but really, it's to it's talk, um, you know, closest friends and family, perhaps those that have served who are then veterans or still in, in the military. Um, who be able to understand you a bit more. And what is the mo- the one most important thing you would like people listening to this to know about suicide? Firstly, I guess you you really don't have to stand alone, whether you're a serving veteran or a family member. You know, you really do not have to go through some of the challenges that you might be facing alone. Um, it's really important to talk in the first instance. And, you know, if you're on the receiving end of that talking, it's really important to listen actively um, and to really... Um, invest in the well-being of, of the person that's opening up to you. Um, what I would say is that you know there's there's always opportunities to, you know, if you're out of the military to get in touch uh, and reconnect with perhaps some some veterans organisations, perhaps local ones or your you know regimental associations or Royal Air Force or Royal Navy, Royal Marine, just to re-engage and really kind of reduce some of the social isolation and loneliness that that we've seen crop up, particularly over the last couple of years with COVID. The main message is you don't have to you don't have to go through this alone and actually you know um, take the time to understand perhaps mm. people around you be able to help identify um, those those early signs recognize it potentially in yourself um, and, and report it when necessary particularly those that are serving as well you know you're in a great opportunity to to support each other and that peer-to-peer support is really important and would you necessarily know if someone rang the Samaritans whether they're a veteran or, or serving person in the armed forces so from samaritan's point of view we actively don't ask for personal information that's you know um, voluntarily divulged to us but when that is divulged it's then um, put on our, our our data capture system then there's that kind of bespoke language and that ability to be able to relate to to some of the different experiences that the military community have faced Joe Walcott from Samaritans, and you can call them anytime on 116-123 or email joe at samaritans.org. That's joe at samaritans.org. 
The government's also created a mental health and well-being service specifically for veterans called Op Courage. Ministers say that it's delivering NHS care for all those with the most complex mental health needs. But it has acknowledged there is still more to learn. Last year, it started gathering data on veteran suicides and is currently reviewing deaths over the last 10 years to see if more can be learned. So what more can we do? We'll get the expert view from Professor Neil Greenberg in a moment. But first, Joe Duke's thoughts on the lessons that can be learned from the death of her husband, Dave. I think what was missing was um, an understanding of how his um, service attributed PTSD differed from other mental health problems that people were, were going to community um, organisations with. Part of um, Dave's coping mechanisms um, for, with his PTSD was he did take drugs, he did used to drink. Then what I found was the professionals that were dealing with us, as soon as the drugs and alcohol were mentioned, it was almost like he stopped becoming a mental health patient and then became somebody with an addiction problem so almost like the the mental health problem had just gone away there was a lack of joined up thinking between organizations it became more and more people became involved and each organization looked at him in, in a, as a separate entity and nobody spoke to each other what more do you believe still needs to be done i think we need to support families a lot better um, in the in the lead up, I, I believe that if we supported families more to support injured people, mentally injured people, we would reduce suicide rates. I think if there was more education, if there was more empathy and understanding in communities, it, we would go a long way in reducing um, suicide. I also believe that we need to support those who are bereaved by suicide much better than what we do at the moment. I think the thing that we can do as a society and that the military can do very well is, yes, we need to be aware of suicide, but we need to focus on trying to reduce the risk factors that lead people to that that tragic decision. And the biggest thing that can be done is to try and improve the mental health uh, of people within the armed services as, as much as we can. Because actually, if people can leave the military without a mental health problem, uh, with a sense of um, of having achieved many things and hopefully with improved coping skills compared to how they were before they went in, actually their risk of suicide should go down. And, and indeed, I think that's borne out by the figures that, that show that you know, veterans aren't indeed at increased risk as a whole group. Um, the other thing is to focus on these unfortunate individuals who do leave with mental health problems or who leave uh, as what we call early service leavers. So they don't serve very long, probably because of they got many difficulties when they came into service. We know those people are at high risk and we need to make sure they don't feel isolated and they're properly supported. And then the very last piece is, is kind of back to where we started really, which is encouraging people who have mental health problems to feel confident that they can reach out and ask for help. Because actually, once you take that brave first step and get into a, a treatment and care service that actually is going to look after you, that hopefully opens up the uh, the curtains to a brighter light and a more positive future. And that once you instill in someone that sense of positivity, that actually, although it's dark now, there is some light in the future, that can make a massive difference in terms of their, their, their risk of taking their own life. 
Professor Neil Greenberg, and before him, Joe Jukes. We've discussed a lot in the last half hour, but there are some significant points that have run throughout. Most importantly, we should remember that the vast majority of service personnel and veterans do not suffer significant mental health problems. There are, however, smaller groups where the risk is increased, particularly younger men who've served only a few years in the armed forces. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or you know someone who is, we've heard consistently that talking to someone is the best thing to do. If you do want to get help, we have a list of contact details for organisations that can offer support on our website. It's at bfps.com slash audience support. My thanks to Joe Walcott, Joe Jukes, Professor Neil Greenberg and to Herbie. As I said at the start, he shares his story to try to help others, to demonstrate that however bad you feel, suicide is not inevitable, that with help he came through the very darkest of thoughts. And so we leave you with a final thought from Herbie. Life's, life's for living, and I always tell people that now. You know, life is good. I mean, I'm, I'm doing... A lot of stuff now that I haven't done for years. I struggle with my mobility. Yes, I struggle with uh, crowds and I don't use lifts. If I can help it, I don't like to go in small lifts. But I'm I'm living the dream, you know. I'm, I'm out, I'm shopping. In fact, I get to do all the shopping now. <laughs> um, I enjoy, you know, I'm enjoying life. I'm, I'm living my life like I should be. You know, I'm not hiding away. I'm not just existing. I wake up every day and I think, great, it's another day.